This is a time of the year when we can feel like we hear the same songs about a million times over. But the one we just sang, probably you only heard here. Uh, because those third and fourth stanzas uh, were written by Eric uh, for our church family, and I love them. I love that melody. I think the way that melody builds is just fantastic, but it needed some better lyrics on top of the existing ones, so I am so grateful to Eric for uh, writing those third and fourth stanzas for us. All right, this morning we are going to do what feels to me like it is impossible, (laughs) and that is tackle biblical manhood in 45 minutes and then do the same with biblical womanhood. Um, I, I have in mind the person who listened to our seminar on identity back in the spring. That's the foundation of this. And then listened to our five-part series of gender earlier this fall. Um, and so that means that you are... F- um, there you go. You are familiar with this concept of gender... Gender refers to the good way in which the different God-given realities of our male and female bodies result in different God-given tendencies which support God-given roles. And you're also familiar with this illustration of the way in which our biological sex, bottom left, results in a God-given calling as male or female. Within that calling, there is a tremendous amount of individual uniqueness in each of us. And yet, right down the middle of those arrows, you see that there is a core of biblical gender essentials that we need to pursue. But we haven't yet defined what those essentials are. So, I'm speaking today to the Christian who... You can just advance two slides to the blank slide. Just go to the blank one. My remote's not working. So I'm speaking to the Christian who says, how can I know that I'm being a faithful steward of my God-given manhood or womanhood? So will you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1? And I certainly ask that you be gracious with me. This is an intensely controversial topic among Christians. The passages are sometimes quite difficult and... I'm trying to summarize in 45 minutes something that has had multitudinous volumes written about it. Um, So be gracious. And men, I urge you to open up your heart. Don't be defensive. Just let God work in you this morning, whatever he wants to do in your heart through this. Now, as we begin, a little bit of introduction that's not just specific to manhood, but to both. Let's remember that from the beginning, God places a strong emphasis on the commonality between male and female. So in Genesis 1, 27, so God created man, one humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have, have dominion. 
So we see that God created one humanity with a common purpose to fill God's earth and rule over God's creation on His behalf. Then in chapter 2, we read about how God created woman because chapter 2, verse 20 says, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. None of the animals were like him. And so the first wonder here is that God created someone like Adam. That's why in chapter 2, verse 23, the man says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So you see the emphasis here is on one humanity with one calling, which we call the creation mandate. Now, if we move ahead from there all the way to Christ, we find that in Christ there is a new creation mandate, the Great Commission to make disciples of all the nations. That doesn't, that doesn't remove the original creation mandate. They remain together side by side. But once again, in the new creation mandate, we find that male and female share in that single purpose. When it comes to justification, Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither male nor female, which means neither one is going to get you ahead when it comes to righteousness before God. Both men and women need Christ through repentance and faith, and both can then become fellow heirs of the grace of life. Both can become co-heirs with Christ who have the full rights as firstborn sons in the family of God. Both men and women. There are not two different great commissions, nor are there two different descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit. Men and women are called to believe in Jesus, live like Jesus, live for Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. As the church was formed, the Spirit was given equally to men and women. Spiritual gifts were given to every person for the, whole, for the good of the whole church family. The church only grows through the faithful working of every part. And the brothers and sisters, I love this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, the brothers and sisters can be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Continuing even further ahead, we find that in eternity, the saints, male and female, inherit the kingdom of God forever. The original call to them, Genesis 1, male and female, to rule over God's creation, that call will be restored and fulfilled in the eternal rule of the saints over God's new creation. And so as we talk about biblical gender essentials for the rest of this morning, please remember that we could make a huge list of biblical truths and principles that are not related to male or female. They are for all people. So then, why talk about differences at all? Well, look back with me at Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Extroverts and introverts, he created them. Short and tall, he created them. Artists and engineers, he created them. Balding and not balding, he created them. But none of those things are mentioned. Only this, male and female. If you look down at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, what is the one moment in the original creation when God said that something was not good? It was the moment when there was only male and not yet female. It is not good that the man should be alone. And so over and over again, the Bible speaks to men and women in specific and sometimes distinct ways. 
Male and female, equal in God's image, yet different in God's good design. And the differences between men and women, we have to say as Christians, we must say they are very good. We sometimes joke about the differences. There are many funny YouTube videos about the differences, and it's fine to laugh about those things. But we must reject the worldly idea that men and women can never understand each other, never figure each other out, never work together. You know, there's a famous book that I think is titled, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And do you know what you should say to that as a Christian? You should say, absolutely not. Male and female are from one good creator who made us to be complementary teammates. This also means that we reject the idea that men and women must be in competition with each other or that we need to prove that our sex is better or that we always have to live in suspicion of one another. That is worldly thinking. That is not biblical thinking. Sin can make a mess of both males and females. Of course we know that. But the foundational God-given differences are good and they make us wonderful teammates in life, in work, in family, and in the church. So, to come now to biblical manhood in specific. How can a man be faithful to his God-given calling as a man? I've attempted to summarize it in four sentences. If you just go through your handout, you can read them if you look at the main headings with me. A God-honoring man humbly watches for every opportunity to take responsibility and courageously carries out that responsibility with self-sacrificing love. He is eager to embrace the responsibility of a husband, father, or pastor, if God wills. He is committed to sexual activity only according to God's design within a marriage covenant with one woman. He is thoughtful about culturally appropriate expressions of manhood and does not seek to present himself as a woman. All right, so let's take those things one at a time. First of all, a God-honoring man humbly watches for every opportunity to take responsibility. If I had to put manhood in one single word, it would be the word responsibility. Look with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Woman was absolutely essential, and yet the burden of the responsibility was placed upon the man. Then in chapter 3, the serpent came, and he deceived the woman, and she sinned first. And yet, the primary responsibility was the man's. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9 But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 11, he said, Who told you, masculine, singular pronoun, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten, masculine, singular verb, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Both were equally sinful, Yet Adam was especially responsible. 
Which is why Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so then in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, Adam says, The woman whom you gave to be with me. And so here from the very beginning, we see one of men's greatest temptations, and that is to neglect or deflect or make excuses for our responsibility. We also see in the bigger picture, what I'm saying is we see that man has a unique responsibility for others. This continues through the Old Testament with a consistent emphasis on the men's responsibility for the nation of Israel, for their wives, for their children, and then in the New Testament, their responsibility first for the apostolic truth and then second of all for the church. There are many biblical examples of men who were attentive, who took initiative, who accepted responsibility, and who were a great source of blessing. There are also many examples of passive or selfish or cruel men. Every Christian man here knows the dual temptation to be either harsh and domineering or lazy and uninvolved. Real men, godly men, humbly watch for every opportunity to take responsibility. Now, let's talk briefly about four words that are related to responsibility. So many more could be added, but here are four that we have time for this morning. And the first is the word strength. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here I believe Peter is talking about our bodies because on average men have a greater brute strength than women. We see this same idea in 1 Corinthians 16.13 when Paul uses a Greek word that means act like a man and he pairs it together with be strong. Now, some women are physically stronger than some men. Some women are tougher than men when it comes to enduring sickness and dealing with pain. Women demonstrate an amazing strength in childbirth. And in many ways that aren't physiological, women can be stronger than men. And yet it's indisputably true that a man's body was designed by God with more emphasis upon physical strength in comparison to the body of a woman. And though it's not our point today, there are also demonstrable ways in which men tend to demonstrate other traits associated with strength, like aggression, more than women tend to do. This does not mean that a man's physical strength is the measure of his manhood, for which I am glad because some of us are scrawny. Men can be strong in a variety of different ways. But the point is that a man is aware of the raw strength difference between men and women, and that inclines him, that should incline him to take responsibility and seek to care for others. A man seeks to be strong and use strength in those ways which help him in his responsibility to care for others, not in those ways that glorify him and draw attention to how great he is. Sometimes that's physical, like, for example, the way police officers stay in shape because they have responsibility for others. But there are many other kinds of strength that a man can develop and then utilize to serve others. 
So we're not creating a caricature of a bodybuilder as the true man. Rather, true men take whatever their God-given strengths are and utilize those as they take responsibility for others. And they recognize the overall necessity of being aware of the fact that God gave them more strength than women physically, and that gives them responsibility to care. Now, another key word is the word leadership. Some people would say that the one word for manhood, I've said I think the best word is responsibility. Some people would say the best word is leadership. And that's, in a sense, that's true. I, I haven't chosen that word for a couple reasons. First of all, sometimes when we use the word leadership, we're talking about a particular kind of personality. And not all men have a leadership personality. That doesn't mean they can't be true biblical men. Sometimes when we use the word leadership, we're talking about specific roles. And not all men will have those specific roles. For example, you don't have to be a dad to be a true man. So if by leadership we mean a certain personality type or specific leadership roles, then those things aren't actually essential to true manhood. But if by leadership we mean a willingness to take responsibility, to be attentive, to take initiative, to set direction, to go first when that is best, then yes, men should be leaders. In the garden, Adam failed as a leader. Another word related to responsibility is protection. I'm not sure this is directly stated in the Bible in the sense that I'm not sure it's, it's commanded, but it is definitely implied by the command to husbands to understand and honor their wives as the weaker vessel. If men are physically stronger in God's created wisdom, then the responsibility is on them to ensure that their strength is used to protect those who are more vulnerable. The stronger should take responsibility to protect the weaker. And so then it's no surprise that in the Bible there is a very strong pattern of male responsibility in protective roles, such as government and the military, as well as protecting the home and protecting the church from things like false teaching. Now, women are amazing protectors. Even the womb is this incredible protection for a developing child. Women are sometimes better at protecting than men, but we're not talking about what men are better at. We're talking about what men are called to do, and that is take the responsibility for protecting others. And then another key word related to responsibility is provision. Here in Genesis 3, in verses 17 through 19, when God speaks individually to the serpent and then the woman and then the man, the assumption here is that the man will be working hard in the field so that the family can eat. There is at least an implication that the responsibility for provision rests upon him. Ephesians 5.29 says that husbands should nourish their wives even as they do their own bodies. Now, the point there is spiritual, I realize, but it still indicates that the husband is taking the responsibility for nourishment. And so, a man's inclination should be toward providing for others. That's part of the responsibility. Now, when we hear that, it is easy to immediately start thinking about the controversy in some Christian circles 
about whether or not it's okay for a wife to work outside the home? Or is a man supposed to be the sole breadwinner for his household? That's a complicated question made very foggy by the fact that we approach that question from the standpoint of our industrialized suburban commuter world. And then we read that world back into the biblical texts. But that's not how provision worked in most places or in most times in human history. Historically, including most of the time in the Bible, provision for the family was a household responsibility. Everyone was working together to make sure that we had food to eat. Proverbs 31 certainly portrays that. Titus 2 says that older women should teach younger women to be working at home. But he was not addressing modern suburbia and the question of whether a woman should commute to work or not. He was telling the older women to exhort the younger women to be hardworking in their households, not lazy. So provision has historically been a team job, a family job, and each family's situation will be unique. Within our church family, we have a huge variety of different provision scenarios. There are so many different situations. There are different stages of life. There are illnesses. There are disabilities. There are injuries. There are financial crises and so forth. This is not an area where Christians should judge one another. However, within that overall picture, it is the man as the God-given head of a household who should feel the bottom line responsibility. There might be, in certain seasons and times, good reasons for a wife to work outside of the home. Other times there may be hard reasons why she has to work outside the home, even though that's not what they would prefer. But the point is that no husband should ever say, it's her problem. It's her responsibility. I'm not going to worry about it. I've got video games to play. I've got golf to do. I've got buddies to hang out with. So have a fun time at work, honey. That is evil and ungodly. Every man should feel the responsibility to work hard as God has enabled him to do so and to provide overall leadership, ensuring the overall provision for a household. And how that actually happens will work, look very different in many different households and different family situations. All right. As you can tell, there's a, as our mic is telling us, there's a lot of nuance here that can get complicated. But the overall theme is that a God-honoring man humbly watches for every opportunity to take responsibility. Now, at the risk of causing confusion, I'm going to use a very simple, very practical little example. I have, uh, in the time I've been a pastor, I volunteered with, with, in foster care, and then in the hospital, and now at the Pregnancy Resource Center. And in all of those situations, there have been times when I had women who were my supervisors. Um, And that has always worked great. It has never been an issue at all. But I'm thinking of one particular situation where a homeless man had spent the night outside the front door of the facility, and when time came for us to open, he was still there asleep in his sleeping bag. And I was the only male present that morning. So as soon as I heard my female supervisor mention it, I immediately offered to go wake him up and ask him to relocate. Why? Is it because I'm better at it? 
I won't tell you about these specific ladies that were my supervisors, but in this particular case, I can almost guarantee you they were tougher than me. I wasn't taking responsibility because I was better than them, but because it was right. Now, think about this. If a couple of those ladies had already gone out and were already taking care of it just fine, and I saw that was happening, it would also have been wrong for me to go take over for them as if I'm the tough man here. Get out of my way and let me show you how to handle this. No, 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 no. You see why the word humble is there in our key sentence? It would have been wrong for me to arrogantly take over. But it would have also been wrong for me to hide in my office, pretend like I didn't notice so that I don't have to be bothered with it. That would have been unmanly. A God-honoring man humbly watches for every opportunity to take responsibility. It has been fascinating this week to study these things and then watch the moments in my own life where I'm like, okay, Tim, here's your moment. You mean what you preach? Because there's this part of me that wants to just back out of the way and not worry about it, and I didn't see that. I didn't notice that. Not my responsibility. No, Tim, take the responsibility. A God-honoring man humbly watches for every opportunity to take responsibility and courageously carries out that responsibility with self-sacrificing love. Men take responsibility motivated by the true biblical love that is self-sacrificing. Unfortunately, self-sacrificing love is not natural for our sinful hearts. That's why Christ and the Gospel are essential for biblical manhood. Biblical manhood cannot be a legalism. It must be a fruit of the gospel growing in our hearts and lives. Genesis 3, if you look at verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The second half of that verse is describing not the way things should be, but the way husbands and wives would tend to be once they fell into sin. Wives will have a a temptation, a tendency to be in conflict with their husband's authority, and husbands will have a temptation to assert their authority in harmful ways. In other words, many commentators agree that in verse 18, the phrase, in verse 16, the phrase, he shall rule over you, is referring to a harsh and an ungodly use of authority. One of men's chief temptations is to use their strength and authority in unloving, self-serving, harmful ways. We, we can see little hints of that all over the Bible, like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He tells men in particular that they must pray and avoid anger and quarreling. That's why Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them because it will be a tendency. The Bible has so many examples of men misusing authority and strength in ways that cause damage. Maybe we can say it like this. Men were created to take responsibility... Sin can corrupt that into a sinful domination. Christ restores that to loving, self-sacrificing responsibility. 
A God-honoring man humbly watches for every opportunity to take responsibility and courageously carries out that responsibility with self-sacrificing love. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. True manhood lays down your life for others. True strength is not measured by how much you can lift. It's measured by how much of yourself you can lay down for others. And Jesus said in Luke 22, the greatest among you, the leader, is the one who serves. Rebecca Merkel has written that societies which have not been heavily influenced by Christianity around the world She says they, quote, never treat women well, and that is extraordinarily easy to document. And then she says this. Can we go to the next slide here? Women being treated with respect is fruit that grows on one kind of tree, and that tree is a cross. Male responsibility has nothing to do with rights. It has nothing to do with being served. It has nothing to do with getting your own way. It has everything to do with sacrificial love like Jesus that takes the responsibility to care for others. It does not look like an arrogant dictator who gets his own way. It looks like a Savior on a cross dying for people. A God-honoring man humbly watches for every opportunity to take responsibility and courageously carries out that responsibility with self-sacrificing love. Men, can you consider right now how does God intend for you to humbly take responsibility? And do you tend more toward the sin of harshness and domineering, or do you tend more toward the sin of abdication and ignoring your responsibility? Are you carrying out your responsibility with self-sacrificing love, laying down your life for others? All right, we must move on to our next sentence. Next sentence, he, a godly man, a biblical man, is eager to embrace the responsibility of a husband, father, or pastor if God wills. You can be a true man without those specific roles, but because we know that those roles come from God, we should be eager to embrace them if God would have that. In our lives. So, first is the role of husband. To state the obvious, but it's worth stating God designed humanity so that we could only carry out the creation mandate together as male or female. Some plants can reproduce on their own, people can't. We have to have each other. And so, having created that reality with male and female, God then brought that relationship. <clears throat> and gave it a very special definition and protection when he instituted marriage. He created male and female, then instituted marriage as one male and one female for life. That creates a new household, and that household is the basic building block of all human society. So to get to be a husband is a high, high calling indeed that goes all the way back to creation. It is the place where a man's willingness to humbly embrace responsibility with sacrificial love often shines the most brightly. 
And it is nothing less than a living illustration of the gospel for all to see. In marriage, 1 Corinthians 11.3 says that the husband is the head of the wife. That means that he is the one who is responsible before God for what happens in that household. His strength is supposed to lead and care for and provide for that household. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, give yourself up for them, nourish and cherish them. What a privilege, what a weight to have God place upon your shoulders the responsibility for a marriage and a new household. Men should eagerly and soberly expect, accept that responsibility if God allows. In addition to this, a godly man will also gladly accept the responsibility of being a father if God wills. It would be more comfortable to not have kids. You could have more fun with just your wife. You could have a lot more financial freedom. Don't even go Google what it costs to raise a child today. But the godly man goes right back to Genesis chapter 1 and he knows that having children is one of the chief purposes of male and female in marriage. We could spend all day talking about the tremendous importance of fatherhood. The statistics are incredibly clear. The evidence in society is unmistakable. But even more importantly, fatherhood is a role that God designed from the very beginning. And so the Bible is full of instructions for fathers, illustrations about fathers, and depictions of the fatherhood of God himself. Wow. Conceiving children is the easy part. Parenting those children in a godly household, that's the real responsibility. So, for example, and we can't get off on fatherhood this morning, but just to give you one example of responsibility, Hebrews chapter 12, who should be the first one to take responsibility for the discipline of the children? It is dad. Does that mean dad does it most? No. That may well not be the case in many homes. But it means that dad is always the one who takes responsibility as a father for the discipline of the children. That's seldom fun, but it is godly. It is true manhood. And that's just one example, one little aspect of the tremendous opportunity to glorify God by accepting the responsibility to be a dad. If God wills, a godly man will eagerly accept the responsibility of a husband, a father, and thirdly, the other role unique to men is a pastor. And so here we're moving from families to the family of God, the household of God. And every indication in the New Testament is that it is men who have the God-given responsibility for the overall care, leadership, protection, and nourishment of a local church. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that it is not God's plan for women to have that role of exercising authority over the whole church or teaching the men of the church, at least in public services. And so, even though only a small percentage of men will be pastors, it should be the heart of every man to be willing to accept that responsibility if God would have it. A godly man is eager to embrace the responsibility of a husband, father, or pastor if God wills. Now, I want to pause here and say a brief word about singleness. And this is, once again, not just for the manhood message, but this is for the womanhood message also. As Christians, we must place a very high emphasis on the importance of marriage and parenting. 
in a society that is completely despising those things. We have to magnify those things. And yet that emphasis then can be very painful for our brothers and sisters in singleness, in infertility, in broken marriages, and so forth. So as we go along today, I, I trust that you'll see that the Bible defines manhood and womanhood in a way that is not dependent upon marriage and parenting. And the singleness of people like Paul and Jesus and many women in the New Testament is a striking testimony to that. The Bible teaches that being one with Christ is far greater than being one with another human being in marriage. When earthly marriages have come to their conclusion, the marriage supper of the Lamb will continue forever. The Bible also teaches that there is a greater family than our biological families. As important as families are, they are earthly. They are temporary. Matthew 12, verse 50, Jesus said, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That doesn't diminish the importance of marriage and earthly families, but it maximizes the importance of the family of God, which is more important than our earthly families can ever be. And within God's family, we can all utilize our God-given strengths as male and female. Single men can take responsibility in very important ways and even act as spiritual fathers, as Paul did so often. A single man can humbly watch for every opportunity to take responsibility and courageously carry out that responsibility with self-sacrificing love. Do you see how the sentence doesn't require marriage? Single women can nurture spiritual life and have an eternal influence as spiritual mothers and other things that we'll talk about later. Now, I know this does not take away the pain or the confusion of something like singleness or infertility. But it is striking that by far the most common way the New Testament refers to us is as brothers and sisters in the most important family, which is God's family. And so there in his family, we can flourish as male and female, whatever our earthly household situation might be. All right, we have to finish up. Uh, Next sentence, he, a godly man, biblical man, is committed to sexual activity only according to God's design within a marriage covenant with one woman. A man has a man's body with a man's sexual capacities, and so he must be committed to sexual activity only according to the body God gave him, which means no homosexual lifestyle. A godly man will also be committed to sexual activity only within a marriage covenant with one woman. Men, that means that fighting against pornography, fighting against other sexual sin in your life is part of being a real man. And that is countercultural to say because the world is telling you that real manhood is sexual promiscuity when actually real manhood is found in faithfulness to the God who gave you your, your body. And then finally, a biblical man is thoughtful about culturally appropriate expressions of manhood and does not seek to present himself as a woman. One of the most challenging passages about male and female is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, That's the chapter that says that a woman should have a symbol of the authority of her husband if she's going to pray or prophesy in the church gathering. And um, it is a a complicated and, and controversial passage that we can't dig into this morning. But the reason why I bring it up is because the passage seemed, it seems to indicate 
that there are that that culturally appropriate expressions of manhood and womanhood are a factor that Christians need to consider. Okay? In other words, do godly Christian men wear blue and godly Christian women wear pink? Do godly Christian men drive motorcycles and godly Christian women crochet? Do godly boys play with trucks and godly girls play with ponies? What do we do with the cultural gender expectations? Well, we know that we never just follow the culture since the ungodly world can really mess things up. So we're certainly not going to define manhood and womanhood based on what the culture thinks. And yet, Christians cannot completely ignore the cultural expectations for male and female. Why? Because if God created me to be a man, I should be proud to be a man, and I should present myself as a man. And cultural factors actually do come into play in that. Now, I realize this is very tricky. I'm not saying that girls may not play with trucks and men may not ever wear pink. Though, interestingly, my my girls have never wanted to play with trucks. But had they wanted to, that would have been fine. I also understand that sometimes people get unfairly criticized based on unfair stereotypes, like a man who gets mocked for writing poetry or wanting to be a nurse. He is not doing anything unbiblical or unmanly. And so I realize that happens. But the point is that a Christian man will be thoughtful about culturally appropriate expressions of manhood because it wouldn't honor God for him to present himself as a woman. He'll be glad to be known as a man because he knows that's what God created him to be. All right, time to wrap up. There is so much more that the Bible says to men. I mean, this has been an extremely brief summary, but I hope We have summarized the essentials about biblical manhood, and here's a way to test what we've done. If we've done this in a biblically faithful way, then our conclusions will be applicable for any type of man in any culture at any time who is a man who loves the Bible and loves the gospel. Okay? If we've been biblically faithful, then the manhood we're describing will be possible for a wheelchair-bound widower somewhere in Europe who loves painting. And a type A single computer engineer in Mumbai. And a father of 12 kids who's a hunting guide in Montana. If we've done it well, we've defined manhood in a way that is hopeful and helpful for every Christian man. And so the most important thing every man here this morning can do is humbly say, what about me, Lord? Search me and know my heart. Based on what I've learned this morning, how could I grow to bring you glory as the man you created me to be? Guys, are you willing to ask yourself that? Are you willing to ask the Lord that with an open heart? this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll come back and try the same thing with biblical womanhood at 11 o'clock. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that biblical manhood is not some means of earning God's favor, gaining our own righteousness, being able to pat ourselves on the back and get ourselves into heaven. We stand in grace as forgiven sinners. 
And so we are so grateful that this whole area is something that we can pursue because we love you and because we trust you as the good and wise creator. And so we want to be restored back to your created purposes. Give us that heart that says, God is good. What are God's ways? Let me live in God's ways. So as you convict the hearts of the men who are hearing this, then bring your strengthening grace that through this conviction we might grow to honor you more as the men you created us to be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.